Well, I'll invite Twyla to come now for our, our scripture reading. And uh, for those who want to look that up in their own uh, Bible, it's going to be Colossians 1, 15 to 23. And that'll be on the screen behind us as well. Uh, Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 23. Good morning, church. I'll be reading Colossians chapter 1, reading verses 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the body, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. This morning I'm going to, excuse me, get my throat cleared first. This morning I'm going to start a new series of messages that will take us from now to Christmas with one little guest preacher break in the middle. And many of you know that a new series usually means that there's going to be a couple extra minutes of wind up uh, from me. So I might as well get right into it and lay that on you here. Um, Several years ago I was listening to a speaker talking uh, about evangelism and missions and they told a story about a group of Christians in Turkey. And Turkey is 99% Muslim, and so social shunning of non-Muslims is pretty normal, state persecution is fairly common, and violence against religious minorities isn't all that unusual. And that's gotten worse recently. But in the the midst of all that, there were some pretty gutsy Christians in Turkey who came up with this idea of creating a tool that they could use to help explain to their Muslim neighbors what a Christian is, what a Christian actually believes, because there were all kinds of misunderstandings about that. Uh, negative stereotypes and odd ideas about who Christians were. And so this also seemed like it would maybe be a way to introduce people to who Jesus is as well. So they created this very professional-looking magazine to, to try to accomplish this. And they used a little bit of to, uh, humor in the title as well to maybe soften people's reception to it. So they called it Infidel, Explain Yourself. That was the title of their magazine. 
And that was a fascinating example to me because it's, it's hard for Christians here to imagine living in a place that is totally dominated by a non-Christian way of thinking, where people have no idea who Christians are and what they believe. Canada is, of course, quite different. Even though a lot of Canadians are what we now often call nuns, they, they don't identify strongly with any religion, um, the, the crit, 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 uh, Christian tradition and values are still influential in the way we think. Many people have walked away from active Christian faith, but they haven't replaced it with something else. And so there's still a number of biblical beliefs and values that are at work in them. It's kind of like a source code of a computer program that's running in the background of people's thinking that they don't even necessarily realize that it's there. Because most of the people that you know would probably agree, right, that human beings have inherent value and worth. They should be treated with dignity and respect. Like, that's not something that's been universally believed by all cultures and all places at all times. And in our culture, that's drawn right out of Genesis 1, where humanity is created in the image of God. But many people wouldn't be able to trace the origin of that belief or many other things that they believe about charity or love or justice. But these still rest on a biblical foundation. That's why we say that we live in a post-Christian culture and not a non-Christian culture. We haven't become something else yet. So the foundation is still there, even though people are trying to build increasingly incompatible additions onto that foundation. So if you can imagine being one of these tiny minority of Christians in a country like Turkey, you can maybe see that you would have to be convinced and committed. You would certainly want to know what you believe and why and it would be obvious to everybody else around you that you are quite different. But in Canada, you can be a very, very casual Christian, even a comatose one, and there's no real cost to that that you have to pay. And in this fairly safe and calm environment, uh, Christians can kind of coast along without any sense of what they believe and why. And that was especially evident uh, just this last week or, or two when I was reading about uh, this new big update to what's called the, uh, the State of Theology Survey that was done in the United States. And they compared beliefs about God in the general population and those of, of evangelical Christians. And I'm going to say a lot more about that in my overflow post this week when I get back to my, my blog writing a little bit. But the bottom line is that the survey found that a huge percentage, a strong majority of American Christians had beliefs that were just way out of line with traditional Christian theology. Or to put it a different way, most of the Christians they surveyed were heretics. Uh, and those numbers actually got worse the more often people attended church. I haven't figured out why that is yet, I, but they, they got worse. And that is a wake-up call for people like me who are clearly failing to teach some very basic Christian theology well. There isn't a Canadian study that's as comprehensive as that one, but I, I have no optimism that it would find that things are any better on our side of the border. The other thing about being a Christian in our culture is that it is not always obvious what sets Christians apart from non-Christians. Right? On the surface, we still have a fair number of values in common. So what is the real difference apart from this list of things that Christians don't do and don't approve of that people tend to focus in on? And that, that question is going to be pretty central to today's message. So that, that is the, the wind-up. That is the, this series that I, I'm going to more gently call Just, just Explain Yourself. Uh, to look at what are some of these key Christian beliefs? What are some of the ones that even specifically Baptists are all about? Uh, how do we get those so we can understand and explain those? And then 
How can we challenge ourselves to be better imitators of Jesus by living up to those things that truly do set us apart from others? And this morning, I'll start right at Baptist bedrock, which is the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that takes us back to that question. What sets us apart from the people around us, right? Especially from the, the vast majority of Canadians who are these, these nuns, right? Not the Catholic ladies who wear the habits, but the, the nuns who have opted out of having that religious component to their, their lives. M many of them grew up in the church or have a Christian background or family connection, but they've either formally rejected that, or more often, they just, they just kind of drifted away from it. It didn't connect. They didn't see the value in it. Something knocked them off that course or disappointed or disillusioned them. There's a lot of stories. And that's where the typical Canadian is. How do you tell the difference between someone like that and a practicing Christian? Now, it's tough, I think, in a lot of ways. Christians are, in fact, somewhat more likely, the data I have says, to give and volunteer their time to charitable causes, but Lots of non-religious people do that too. Christians, of course, are supposed to be known by our love according to, hang on, let me look that one up, according to Jesus, right? <laughs> but I know plenty of kind and loving nuns, and I know some cantankerous Christians that you could find in other churches mostly, right? But our, our reputation could use some work in this department. You know, I don't think... Love is the first thing that comes to a lot of non-Christian minds when they're asked about what they think of Christians. You can make an educated guess about someone's religiousness based on how they feel on certain social issues or how they vote, but that's not a slam dunk. Uh, there's lots of diversity inside and outside the church on these things. So this is a genuine issue in practicing and representing faith. What do you, in fact, do that reveals to your neighbors that you are a committed Christian apart from the fact that Perhaps you can be seen getting up and leaving the house for a few hours most Sunday mornings. And the problem with me even framing the question that way is that following Jesus is not merely adhering to a particular list of things that you must do and must not do. If that was all Christianity was, following a list of rules and principles, well then we have to ask, why isn't the Bible just a list of rules and principles? I mean, if you reduced it to that, you could get the whole thing down to a couple of pages instead of this big collection of history and poetry and parable that can inspire beauty and courage or sometimes utterly confuse and confound us. Why not have it be simpler? Well, for one thing, we know that legalistic people who thought it was a good idea to boil the scriptures down to a list of rules were, in fact, Jesus' number one opponents. So that is probably a bad model. And for another thing, human beings need more than rules and principles to obey. We need a Lord of our lives to follow. And that's where we really ought to be set apart from the people around us. Now, you've heard me say other times before that everybody worships something. If fewer and fewer people are coming to church to worship God each, you know, each year, then that doesn't mean that actually less worship is happening each week in our country, in our culture. It just means that that energy is getting directed to something else. It's getting directed to politics. It's getting directed to activism. It's getting directed to consumerism of some kind. And perhaps the most common kind of worship that people are trading God for is, is really the worship of self, right? My autonomy to do whatever I please, my convenience, my preferences, my prosperity. Who is the Lord of my life? It's me. 
And that's what the consumerism and the hyper-individuality of our culture caters to, right? Just watch a few ads for any product so that we can be told that, you know, a unique and independent person like you just really needs to own this car or this watch or this jacket or drink this beer in order to have the amazing life that you deserve. You can be Lord of your own life. Then you get to call all the shots. You get to make your own rules instead of having to align yourself with somebody or something else. But there's also a lot of pressure in that because if you're going to be Lord of your own life, well, now it's also on you to supply the meaning and the purpose and the hope for the future as well. Living in a world where most people are their own Lord, it, it sets a Christian apart if they truly make Jesus Lord in their life. Which doesn't mean, of course, paying lip service to following Jesus, but actually committing to doing whatever he says and trying to imitate him, even when that is inconvenient or costly. All right, so it's high time that I dug into our scripture lesson from the book of Colossians, which will give us some deeper insight into this. And one really interesting thing about this passage is that scholars are pretty sure that the majority of the passage, not the end bit about Paul, but the, the part before, all the part before that, that this is a very early Christian hymn. Uh, so it's not just some additional thoughts, you know, put down by, by Paul as he writes to the Christ, Christians around the city of uh, Colossae, but he's actually making use of early Christian worship in order to put Jesus at the center as he begins this letter. And of course, nobody knows what tune you would have sung that to. The lyrics don't seem like they would be what the kids today would call a banger, but it's a fascinating, a fascinating look at what Christians believed about Jesus from very early on, what led them toward praise and devotion to Christ. And there's a lot in here, but I'm going to focus on seven characteristics, and I'll try to go through them at a good pace here, but seven characteristics of why Christ might have the supremacy in everything, as the passage says. Or we might also say it's seven reasons why it is fitting for us to call Jesus Lord. And first, right out of the passage, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. And another way of putting that is to say that Jesus is the visible expression of God. He is God revealed to us in a way that our human minds can actually understand. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so the Christ is worthy to be called Lord because through his relationship with God the Father, he is the perfect resemblance and representation of God given to us so that we can know God. Second thing, in the very second half of the first uh, sentence in this passage says, he's the firstborn over all creation. And firstborn doesn't really have anything to do with birth or birth order here. It's about holding a privileged position that Christ preceded creation and has authority over it which ties into the third thing, which is, you know, by him, all things were created, says our passage. All things have been created through him and for him. And so Jesus, it's important to know, is not like God Jr. who shows up halfway through the story. He is instrumental in the creation of all things, of the world, of the people, of all the spiritual beings, everything material and immaterial in this universe. And it is the Christ who sustains it all. In him, all things hold together. And the fourth thing, which says that he is the head of the body, the church. And so Jesus' lordship is emphasized when it comes to the body of Christ, which is the universal church, composed of all those people all around the world who sincerely follow Jesus. And this is a really important point for Baptists, who first arose at a point in history 
when many Christian groups had a king or a pope or some other earthly figure who had spiritual authority over them. And Baptists organized themselves differently to avoid having any person in a position of power that might detract from seeking to be subject to Jesus first and Jesus only. That's a big reason why we're not hierarchical, right? Baptist churches are independent of one another, but choose to connect and cooperate. They determine for themselves things like, what are our standards for who's a member, or what is our statement of faith? Rather than these things being imposed by someone from a higher rung of the organization. All right, so Jesus is the head of the church. On to the fifth thing, which is that Christ is the beginning, it says, and the firstborn from among the dead. That's got an odd sound to it. The firstborn from among the dead. That's an Easter reference, right? That Jesus was the first to rise in an immortal body. He is the one who became flesh, who humbled himself even unto death, as it says in Philippians, and then triumphed over death and is now exalted by God the Father to the highest place and been given the name that is above every other name. So Jesus led the way in this. He is Lord over this new order of resurrection glory. Sixth, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So Paul repeats that in the next chapter of this same book. It says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So fullness is an important word in this book. It points us toward the completeness of God's being this full and complete and gloriousness of God that dwells forever in Christ. And the the seventh, and if there can be a most important, maybe it's this one, or at least tied for most important, that the Christ reconciles us to God. So this fullness of God that dwelled in Christ did that so that God could be reconciled to all of creation by making peace through his blood shed on a cross is what our passage said. And so this is, you know, hopefully sin and salvation stuff that most practicing Christians understand and could even explain to some extent that humanity chose rebellion against God. It caused spiritual separation and death. And that, again, is what we read here, that once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, it says. And so Jesus accepted the cross, giving his life to win freedom, for anyone who would like to have peace with God and return to him. Making peace through his blood shed on the cross, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so the world is made savable through Christ's sacrifice. And those who belong to Christ gain his status, in a sense, before God. And so God's enemies can, by faith, become his friends, become his children, and rest secure in knowing that God sees them as holy and pure because of Christ. All right, seven is a lot, so let me bring them down to the very simplest form I can and and drop them on you one more time, and I've got a slide to help me with this one. So why did early Christian community lift up Jesus in praise as their Lord? which is captured in the the scriptures in this passage. That might be too small to read on my slide. We'll see, but we've got seven. First, that he showed us who God is in a way that we could grasp. Second, that he has authority over all creation. Third, that he, he brought creation into being and he sustains it. Fourth, that he's head of the church. Fifth, that he is the, was the first to be resurrected as a sign to all of us. 
Six, that the fullness of God dwells in him. And seventh, that he reconciles us to God. That is a good start for what it means to declare that Jesus is Lord. And for anyone who's ever heard an argument about how, you know, the, the Bible is, you know, written way after everything happened and when no one could even know what was going on and people were kind of just making stuff up. Like this, this is what, you know, this early Christian hymn, the hymn had to have existed before this book, which came very early on as well in the, in the history of all of this. And so, you know, from, from the beginning, we have strong evidence here that this is who those first Christians knew Jesus to be. This is one of the richest passages in the Bible when it comes to expressing the, the deity of Christ. And Christians see Jesus as worthy of being Lord in our lives because he is this manifestation of God to us, because we have life and breath because of him, our creator, because he laid down his life to ensure that we can claim the promise of eternal life, and because Christ and Christ alone reconciles us to God. He makes a way for us in our sin, in our pride, in our blindness, in our rebelliousness to find life, and return to the family of God, forgiven and secure. And I think it's worth saying that Jesus is not worth talking about if he is any less than this. C.S. Lewis once expressed, expressed it this way, which eventually made it into one of his books, Mere Christianity. And he said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing that we must not say. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, he writes. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And so you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And even in Scripture, we see that nobody encountered Jesus and had a mild reaction to him. They're like, oh, that's nice. That was a nice guy. I liked him. No, they, they came across Jesus and they, they hated him. They were terrified of him, or they adored him. Those were the, they were strong reactions one way or the other. And so, one thing we cannot do is kind of keep Jesus in our closet like a proverbial umbrella, you know, pulling him out on a rainy day when we really need some comfort or some help. We can't use Jesus' name and reject Jesus' way. And imagine how ridiculous that would be to a Christian in a place like Turkey who experiences so much discomfort and potential danger daily from the faith that they profess. That is just not worth it unless you believe Jesus is who he says he is and desire to follow him as Lord in your life and Lord of the church to which you belong. If Jesus is worth anything, then Jesus is worth everything. And this is the fundamental divide. This is what sets Christians apart from people who have a Christian background or a Christian family history or people who appreciate the teachings of Jesus or people who, look, they just they haven't been bothered to really think through any of this through. They're just kind of going with the flow. We hold that Jesus is Lord and seek to act accordingly. 
Our larger family of churches is the Canadian Baptists of Atlantic Canada, and one of their documents explaining Baptist distinctives, the, the things that kind of define who we are, talks about the Lordship of Jesus Christ very simply in this way, that belief in God means that a, what a Christian says is also evident in his or her action, that every area of a believer's life and the life of the church is to be subject to the Lord. God is the supreme authority. And so that means doing some of the things that people really don't prefer to do sometimes, like actually changing our mind about things because we grow in our understanding of what God values, or actually changing the way we live because we discern that God has a way that is wiser, or being open to the ways that we are in fact blind and broken and asking God to make us humble and to form our character. Rick Warren began his mega best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, with a line that captures a lot of what it means to call Jesus Lord when he starts by very simply saying, it's not about you. Your comforts, your preferences, your desires, they don't get to come first when you're not Lord. And the currents of our secular religious culture don't come first. The God who made you and adores you and gave his life for you and offers eternal life to you comes first. And it may feel like a sacrifice to decide that, that actually I'm not Lord in my own life. I'm not entitled to make all my own rules and do everything the way I prefer. But in my experience, when that feeling fades a bit, you gain more appreciation for how much you just don't know. How often you'll choose the easy way over the right way if you're left to your own devices. How blind you can be to your own motivations and weaknesses how powerless you are to actually make anything happen the way that you want it to in this messy world. Maybe you don't, but I need help with all of these and many, many other things, and so I need a Lord to turn to because I am nowhere near sufficient. And that's even assuming you aren't under the yoke of a particularly harsh Lord that you need to renounce because some people follow a Lord who leads them into Addictions to, to drug or pornography. A Lord who fills them with pride and entitlement that destroys their relationships. A Lord who directs them down any number of paths that are harmful or empty. Some of which are very religious paths. Now I know and you know that people use Jesus' name for a whole bunch of things. To fit in or seem more acceptable to some group. To justify something that they're doing to tr by trying to connect it to the Bible or Christian faith to run for office, to scam people out of money. Sometimes those last two go together. But I find this, of course, frustrating. I find it discouraging at times to look out at the world and see that, to know that there are so many false versions of faith. But there is also a church, the people who believe and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and then they act accordingly. Not perfectly, to be sure, but with genuine faith in Christ and a real desire to imitate him. And that's what sets Christians apart, putting Jesus first in a way that actually causes us to resemble him. That's the, the proof in the pudding there when over time we grow in his likeness, his compassion, his courage, his graciousness and truth begin to appear more and more in our lives. And so two thoughts I would leave you with. First, for those whose true desire is to know and follow Jesus here today, let's just not be casual about this word, Lord. Because it pops up so often in our Bible readings, our worship songs, our prayers, we can kind of stop hearing it for what it, all that it is and all that it should mean to us. 
But when we read or say or sing, Lord, let's try to bring to mind all of this. To think of everything that the Colossian church wanted to put into that hymn about who Jesus is as our creator, as our redeeming savior. And the second thing I leave you with is that there is no bad time to choose Jesus over yourself or over the world when it comes to having a Lord. If you know that there is something greater than yourself, if you want to live for more than the next day and the next dollar, if you believe that there's more to human existence than however many years we get to spend on this earth, well, then there is no bad time to ask God to reveal himself to you and to help you make that step of faith and declare that Jesus is Lord. Let me offer a word of prayer for you. Lord God, Lord Jesus, help us to fill that word with the fullness that it deserves when we speak it and help us to, to live as though it's true when we declare that of you. God, it really is that simple and yet it's so easy to put ourselves in your spot sometimes, to Decide that, well, I'm going to be Lord today. I'm going to ignore what I know that you say is, is right. I'm going to keep all this for, for myself. I'm going to let selfishness rule. I'm going to... God, it's, it's not easy to keep you on the throne of our lives. If we could just say it once and have it be done, well, that would be nice. But each day, we need to make you Lord all over again. And I pray that you would help us do that. And if we haven't done it today, then may we do that today. And if we haven't done that in weeks or months or years, then there's no day like today to put you back where you belong in our lives. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to live in this world as a people who truly are set apart, who truly are distinct by having our highest allegiance to you, not to ourselves, not to the currents of our culture, not to not to the, the devil himself and the ways that he wants to destroy and harm people, but to you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us like you more and more each day as we seek to let you rule and reign over us and your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.